Friday the 17th of November 2017 and this is The World This Week with Carolyn Scott and Jack Foster. We wish to make it abundantly clear that this is not a military takeover of government. In the early hours of Wednesday morning, a Zimbabwean military official made that announcement after troops occupied the state broadcaster and placed President Robert Mugabe under house arrest. We take a look at events as they've been unfolding and ask what this coup, which isn't a coup, means for Zimbabwe. When we say it's a good thing that this has happened, the good thing is that it now looks like Grace Mugabe won't be president. I think everybody agrees that Grace Mugabe would have been a catastrophe as president. The UK government has been accused of economic murder. 120,000 counts of economic murder as a new landmark study analyzes the impact of austerity measures. On Wednesday night, Donald Trump returned from his two-week tour of Asia. But how did it go? Everywhere we went, our foreign hosts greeted the American delegation with incredible warmth, hospitality, and most importantly, respect. Further evidence that America's renewed confidence and standing in the world has never been stronger. We've got a detailed report on the US President's Asia tour, as well as analysis of what it all means. Calls for an industrial strategy for Scotland as over a thousand jobs are at risk as the engineering firm Bifab faces potential administration. The people are working as per normal. We keep going, we keep fulfilling our end of the bargain, but we are the collateral that could get discarded at any time. And we'll be taking a look at the 16th annual Carrying Stream Festival, which this year paid tribute to two of the late greats of the Scottish folk and traditional music community. All that and more over the next hour on this week's The World This Week. Since the Tuesday evening and into the early hours of Wednesday morning, the military leadership has taken control in Zimbabwe, placing its president, Robert Mugabe, under house arrest and taking control of the state-run Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation. It was at 4am from the ZBC studios under military occupation that a military spokesman wearing military fatigues delivered the following address. To both our people and the world beyond our borders, we wish to make it abundantly clear that this is not a military takeover of government. What the Zimbabwe Defense Forces is doing is to pacify a degenerating political, social, and economic situation in our country, which, if not addressed, may result in a violent conflict. Despite its major players being keen to emphasise that this is not a military coup, few serious commentators are calling it anything else. On Tuesday evening, sections of the Zimbabwe Defence Forces gathered across the capital Harare before seizing control of the Zimbabwe Broadcasting Corporation and other areas of the city. The, that military statement also confirmed that President Robert Mugabe was safe, but that the situation would only return to normal after they had dealt with the criminals around Mugabe responsible for the social economic problems of Zimbabwe. Mugabe's condition has been confirmed by South African President Jacob Zuma, who spoke with him over the phone. The UK Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson made a statement to Parliament following the news, which focused largely on the crimes of the Mugabe administration. Many critics have pointed out that at no point does he express any distaste against the principle of a military coup. All Britain has ever wanted for Zimbabweans is to be able to decide their own future 
in free and fair elections. Mugabe's consuming ambition was always to deny them that choice. And this House will remember the brutal litany of his 37 years in office. The elections he rigged and stole, the murder and torture of his opponents, the illegal seizure of land leading to the worst hyperinflation in recorded history, measured in the billions of percentage points and forcing the abolition of the Zimbabwean dollar. And all the while, his followers were looting and plundering a richly endowed country so that Zimbabweans today are per capita poorer than they were in 1980, leaving many dependent on the health care, education and food aid provided by DFID. Britain has always wanted the Zimbabwean people to be masters of their fate and for any political change to be peaceful, lawful and constitutional. Authoritarian rule, whether in Zimbabwe or anywhere, anywhere else, should have no place in Africa. There is only one rightful way for Zimbabwe to achieve a legitimate government, and that is through free and fair elections held in accordance with that country's constitution. UK Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson reacting to the unfolding military coup in Zimbabwe in a speech to Parliament this week. And in a somewhat surreal event, Robert Mugabe actually appeared at a graduation ceremony this morning in Harare, Friday the 17th of November, surrounded by security personnel, where he delivered a speech which, to the casual observer, would suggest that nothing whatsoever has changed. As far as we are aware, though, he remains, albeit with some freedom of movement, under house arrests. Now, the legacy of Robert Mugabe has become synonymous with the administration's brutality and division, but that wasn't always the case. Back at the beginning of Mugabe's leadership as the country transitioned from the unrecognised former British colony state of Rhodesia to an independent Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe cut a very different figure altogether, as Jack's been finding out. The late Bob Marley performing at Zimbabwe's independence celebrations in 1980. And the lyrics of his song are a reminder of the hope many had for the new Zimbabwe, represented in no small part by the politics of a young Robert Mugabe. Robert Mugabe became Prime Minister of Zimbabwe in 1980 when his ZANU-PF party won the elections following the end of white minority rule, a moment which was celebrated internationally and is generally regarded as one of the most significant precursors to the fall of apartheid in South Africa. When Mugabe first came to power in 1980, the vision of what was Rhodesia in its transition to Zimbabwe was a hopeful one, as we can hear in one of Robert Mugabe's first televised addresses as Prime Minister. The state of peace and security can only be achieved by our determination, all of us, to be bound by the explicit requirements of peace contained in the Lancaster House Agreement which express the general desire of the people of Zimbabwe. Robert Mugabe speaking shortly after he became Prime Minister of Zimbabwe in 1980. Mugabe's transition from freedom fighter in the mould of the likes of Nelson Mandela to his present-day reputation as a brutal dictator followed a slower-than-expected rate of redistribution of land controlled by white farmers to landless blacks, when in 2000 Mugabe buckled under pressure and encouraged the violent seizure of white-owned land. The impact on food production was severe, leading to famine, international sanctions and economic decline. The, uh, the white farmers 
have channels they must follow they are not superhuman beings they have been talking to the vice president who is in charge of the land acquisition program comrade joseph msika they are not satisfied with uh, that level of authority and because they think by virtue of their being british and being white they are more divine than uh, anyone else robert mugabe speaking in 2002 about the aggressive land reforms undertaken by his government against white farmers in zimbabwe and mugabe's slide towards dictatorship was matched by a growing opposition to his rule from the early 2000s he has continued to keep a grip on power of course but through a series of elections marred by violence and electoral fraud. Despite opposition, however, Mugabe's hold on Zimbabwe seemed pretty solid up until this week, that is, when many commentators say he reached too far in his decision to sack his vice president, Emerson Ngamgwama, for disloyalty, disrespect and deceitfulness. But it's generally thought that the real reason behind that move was to clear the path for his preferred successor, his wife, Grace Mugabe. Earlier, I spoke with Peter McCall, the Scottish Green Party campaigner, former rector of the University of Edinburgh and editor of Bright Green, and I asked him if we should have reason to be concerned following the news of a coup d'etat, when most onlookers must surely be cheering at the demise of a dictator like Robert Mugabe. In describing this, I think you need to take yourself to the end of the uh, film The Italian Job, uh, where the bus is hanging off a cliff, uh, and you know that uh, there are really only two options here, either the gold goes down the cliff or they get off the bus, it's, it's one or the other. That's been the situation in Zimbabwe for most of actually really the last 20 years we've always known that there was going to have to be a succession to Robert Mugabe Um, he's the oldest head of state in the world um, and actually very similarly to the second oldest head of of state in the world which is the the British Queen the succession has uh, has consisted of one person waiting for a very long time and you can imagine that there's a there's a lot of pent-up energy in that situation there's a there's a lot of there's been a lot of waiting. What that means is that the politics has played out within ZANU-PF, not within Parliament or within the country. And that's led to a series of power struggles in which the previous Vice President, Joyce Majuru, was uh, expelled from the party, in which her husband, uh, Solomon Majuru, who'd been the head of the military, was the first black general in Zimbabwe, ended up dead in suspicious circumstances. And uh, with this final sacking of uh, Emerson Managua, who had been the vice president, who was the continuity candidate within ZANU-PF. And that sacking was done at the behest of Grace Mugabe, Robert's wife. Um, that led the military establishment, the continuity uh, grouping within ZANU-PF, to, to believe that they were going to be replaced by a group around Grace Mugabe. When we say it's a good thing that this has happened, the good thing is that it now looks like Grace Mugabe won't be president. I think everybody agrees that Grace Mugabe would have been a catastrophe as president. When we take all of that into account, it's obvious that this, you know, the fact that this has happened isn't um, out of the blue. But 
Does that also mean that what's happened over the last um, couple of days, has that been in the pipeline um, and planned for some time, or has this just happened as a result of recent events? There's been a sort of a bifurcation of events. I think the anticipation was that Robert Mugabe would go into the election next year as the ZANU-PF presidential candidate, with Emerson and Managua as his vice presidential candidate. At some point, he would resign, or he would die in office. Presidency would pass to Emerson and Managua, and everyone would be happy with that, apart from Grace Mugabe. And Grace, ha- who, I mean, Grace has no history in the liberation struggle. She was in the typing pool in the presidential office. Uh, so is it just that she is um, drastically underqualified that would make her a poor choice um, for successor? Or Everything that we know about Grace Mugabe is bad. Uh, we know that uh, just just in the last three months, she she was arrested for uh, whipping a maid in a in a Johannesburg hotel. We know that she has a fiery temper. We know that um, she's um, her nickname in in Zimbabwe is, is Gucci Grace because of her um, enthusiasm for uh, luxury shopping. She's somebody who wanted to use the resources of the state for her personal gain in the style of um, many kleptocratic rulers around the world and I think that's what people could see coming. This has been referred to as not being a coup, Uh, it's also been referred to as definitely being a coup certainly to the uninformed eye it perhaps looks a little bit like a coup. Whatever it is um, what what does it mean? What what happens next? There are a couple of things here. Firstly, um, there's been a retrenchment within ZANU-PF around liberation uh, struggle veterans. Uh, Konstantin Chalegwa said said that he couldn't countenance uh, a president who hadn't fought in the liberation struggle. Now, obviously, those people are only going to be around for for so much longer, and that poses an interesting question for how ZANU-PF renews itself, for where what direction it takes. Uh, under uh, um, Mgagwa leadership. Can I get back to that, uh, that sort of Zimbabwe um, of the, the early days of Robert Mugabe? I think that's a really interesting question. I think that, that's where a lot of this turns. Um, and I, I think the likelihood is you, you, you will see a move away from the very kleptocratic tendencies of the Mugabe regime. But I don't think we're going to get back to the early 80s when there was a lot of investment going into education and and infrastructure. I think what you're going to see is a a slower decline than than you would have done under under Grace Mugabe. But what I think is really interesting about this is um, what happens after Managua, because the the question at this this conjecture was, do you become a a security state or do you become a kleptocratic state? They've decided to become a security state. It defers the the big change that will come in Zimbabwe. And in some ways, that, um, that it being deferred at this moment is a good thing because the Zimbabwean opposition is weaker than it's ever been. Uh, there are three parties claiming to be the Movement for Democratic Change who are the main opposition. Um, the Morgan Changarai, who many people will have will have known as the leader of, of, of the, the main MDC in the in the early 2000s, is very ill. Uh, he's, he's got potentially terminal cancer. The, the, the opposition is in, a, is in a much weaker position than it was 10 years ago. 
a, a regrouping in ZANU-PF where they don't refresh is much, much better for the opposition and for democracy than a Grace Mugabe presidency or indeed a move right now to an election where it's likely the opposition would lose. Peter McCall, Scottish Green Party campaigner, former rector of the University of Edinburgh and editor of Bright Green, speaking with Jack earlier about the ongoing military coup in Zimbabwe. This is The World This Week from Friday the 17th of November 2017. Still to come on the programme, the UK government has been accused of economic murder, 120,000 counts of economic murder, as a new landmark study analyses the impact of austerity measures. On Wednesday night, Donald Trump returned from his two-week tour of Asia, but just how did it go? Everywhere we went, our foreign hosts greeted the American delegation with incredible warmth, hospitality, and most importantly, respect. Further evidence that America's renewed confidence and standing in the world has never been stronger. We've got a detailed report on the US President's Asia tour as well as analysis of what it all means. Calls for an industrial strategy for Scotland as over 1,000 jobs are at risk as engineering firm Bifab faces potential administration. The people are working as per normal. We keep going, we keep fulfilling our end of the bargain, but we are the collateral that could get discarded at any time. And we take a look at the 16th annual Carrying Stream Fest this year paying tribute to two late greats of the Scottish folk and traditional music community. And we're back in just a few minutes after this message from the lovely folks over at Common Space. and uh, last year I did a one-week work experience placement at Common Space. It was very important for me because I had never done any sort of work placement of such but in the comfortable environment where the people were really welcoming but it also gave me a, a true valuable experience of researching, communication, how just writing an article and how journalism can just help you open your mind to the world. But after my work placement, I it realised that no matter what career path I chose, working in Common Space helped me realise I wanted my voice to be heard. This is The World This Week. It's the 17th of November 2017. Uh, the UK's Conservative government has been accused of economic murder for their austerity policies, which a new study suggests have caused 120,000 deaths. Carolyn, you've been following this over the past 24 hours or so. What exactly does this study tell us? Mm, well, this study was conducted by the BMJ Open Medical Journal. It conducted research on the relative constraints in public expenditure on healthcare and social care in England since 2010. So basically, how much how many cuts the Tory government has put in place. In the first four years of the Tory-led government, from 2010 to 2014, there were 45,000 more deaths than would be expected had the funding for healthcare and social care stayed at the pre-election levels. That's the real roots of this report. On this trajectory, the report estimated that the figure could rise to nearly 200,000 excess deaths by the end of 2020, even with the extra funding that has now been earmarked for public sector services this year that the Tory government have announced. 
So because of the drop in real terms funding for healthcare and social care under the Tory-led coalition in 2010, the researchers concluded that this may have produced a substantial increase in deaths. Obviously, this report does go into a great amount of detail about how they eliminated other factors. The paper identified that mortality rates in the UK had actually declined from 2001 to 2010, but that this decline then reversed quite sharply after the austerity measures came in, with the death rate then growing again. And one of the authors of the report likened the findings to economic murder. That was the, the headline of this. Yeah, and that's a term that, that, that the authors have coined here. And it, it's certainly a damning report. The findings are a cause for concern when you look at the fact that it's based on the, the, well, the trends that it's predicting in the next few years from 2015 to 2020 would account for 152,141 deaths, they estimate, at around 100 a day. Uh, the government began relaxing austerity measures to an extent uh, this year, announcing the end of its cap on public sector pay rises and announcing an extra £1.3 billion for social care in the spring budget. Is that likely to help? Well, the study estimates that to return to the death rates to the to return death rates to their pre-2010 levels that the spending would need to be increased by £25.3 billion. It is worth noting, of course, that the Department of Health said that firm conclusions can't be drawn from this work. Some independent academics have warned that these funding figures are speculative, but it certainly will be taken seriously by those campaigning against the government's universal credit rollout. It's also been accused of resulting in deaths, and there have been numerous calls to halt that rollout. The Scottish government has called for it to be halted. It's been brought up in Prime Minister's questions time and time again. It was brought up again this week, and Theresa May answered almost every single question at Prime Minister's questions this week about the impact of universal credit by simply stating that evidence shows it's getting more people into work. But it certainly will be interesting to see if the upcoming budget announcement does do anything to ease the concerns raised by this report. You're listening to The World This Week. pushed not to notice that the US President Donald Trump has spent most of the past few weeks touring Asia. Jack's been following his progress every step of the way and we can hear his report on that interspersed with some dubious musical choices. How dare but first, you. Donald Trump will read aloud the Wikipedia entry for his recent Asia tour. Last night I returned from a historic 12-day trip to Asia. This journey took us to five nations to meet with dozens of foreign leaders participate in three formal state visits, and attend three key regional summits. It was the longest visit to the region by an American president in more than a quarter of a century. U.S. President Donald Trump speaking to members of the press on Wednesday night following his return from a tour of Asia, a trip which, according to Trump, went very well indeed. Everywhere we went, our foreign hosts greeted the American delegation, myself included, with incredible warmth, hospitality, and most importantly, respect. And this great respect showed very well our country is further evidence that America's renewed confidence and standing in the world has never been stronger than it is right now. Well, here at the World This Week, we don't just take people like Donald Trump at his word. So let's wind back to the start of Trump's Asia tour and ask if it was really the success he thought it was. After a brief stop in Hawaii, where President Trump met with American troops at Pacific Command and paid his respects at Pearl Harbor, it was on to Japan. Japanese, I think I'm Japanese, I 
I know, I know, but this is a long pack, and trust me, you'll be glad of the silly musical choices by the end. Besides, this is some of the actual music laid on for Donald Trump during his visit. Japanese online pop sensation Pico Taro performing his 2016 hit Pen, Pineapple Pen. I have a pen. I have a pen. A long pen. I have an apple. I have pineapple. But the guy behind the Pen Pineapple Pen song wasn't Trump's only high-profile meeting whilst in Japan, namely, of course, the Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. So my relationship with Shinzo got off to a quite a rocky start because I never ran for office, and here I am, but I never ran. So I wasn't very experienced, and after I had won, everybody was calling me from all over the world. I never knew we had so many countries. It's uncertain whether or not Trump was saying he'd never heard of Japan prior to November last year, but who knows. Whilst in Japan, though, one of Trump's key visits was technically to U.S. soil. The sound of a military crowd assembled at the U.S. Yokota Air Base outside Tokyo to hear Donald Trump speak. Mr. President. Sir, I will tell you that you look great in that suit, but there's something missing. Should I put it on? That's the moment where Trump had his suit jacket swapped out for a Top Gun-style bomber jacket prior to addressing the troops. I like this better. You can have my jacket, just... Because of you, the people of America, the people of Japan, and the freedom-loving people everywhere are able to fulfill their destinies and follow their dreams. We face many challenges and many opportunities, and we will face all of them together as a team. And if we do, I am certain that the future for America, for Japan, and for our cherished allies has never ever looked brighter. Because of patriots like you, freedom will prevail. That's the song currently at the top of the charts in South Korea, likely by the nine-member girl band TWICE, a product of effectively the South Korean equivalent of the X Factor or American Idol. And South Korea was, you'll probably be unsurprised to hear, the next stop on Trump's Asia tour. Currently stationed in the vicinity of this peninsula are the three largest aircraft carriers in the world, loaded to the maximum with magnificent F-35 and F-18 fighter jets. In addition, we have nuclear submarines appropriately positioned. The United States, under my administration, is completely rebuilding its military and is spending hundreds of billions of dollars to the newest and finest military equipment anywhere in the world being built right now. I want peace through strength. Peace through strength. And well, it didn't take an expert on US-Korean politics to work out what Trump was really getting at here. Whilst he spent a lot of time in South Korea praising the success of the country, he spent considerably more time talking about their neighbours to the north. North Korea is a country ruled as a cult. At the centre of this military cult, 
is a deranged belief in the leader's destiny to rule as parent protector over a conquered Korean peninsula and an enslaved Korean people. The more successful South Korea becomes, the more decisively you discredit the dark fantasy at the heart of the Kim regime. U.S. President Trump speaking to the South Korean parliament during his visit there about the regime in North Korea. And international diplomacy kicked in shortly after when the North Korean President Kim Jong-un released a statement calling Trump a dotard, which means old, apparently. Trump responded with a tweet saying that Kim Jong-un was short and fat. Then North Korea issued a death sentence on Trump for insulting Kim Jong-un. It's a good thing that neither of these people have control of any dangerous weapons that might say wipe out the entire human race really now before we take a hop skip and a jump west to beijing let's quickly remind ourselves of what president trump was saying about his next destination last year when he was a mere candidate for the white house china is ripping us on trade they're devaluing their currency and they're killing our companies thousands and thousands you look at the number of companies and the number in terms of manufacturing and plants that we've lost 50,000 because of China. I would certainly start taxing goods that come in from China. Who the hell has to lose $505 billion a year? Donald Trump speaking during his campaign for the presidency during 2016 about the tough stance he would take on China. Of course, we know that his position softened considerably when the Chinese premier visited Washington during the summer. I just want to say it's a great honor to have the president of China and his incredibly talented wife, a great, great celebrity in China, and a great singer. Uh, it's an honor to have you in the United States. U.S. President Donald Trump hosting Chinese President Xi Jinping at the White House during the summer. So how was the tone last week? Did we see a return of the tough-talking, no-nonsense from China, Trump? Well, in a word, no. President Xi, I want to thank you for that incredible welcoming ceremony earlier this morning. It was truly memorable and impressive and something I will never forget. In fact, Donald Trump's tone with the Chinese leadership wasn't just softened compared with the bombast of late 2016. It was, at times, downright sycophantic. Your people are proud of who they are and what they have built together. And your people are also very proud of you. U.S. President Donald Trump admiring the pride that the Chinese people have in their President Xi Jinping, neglecting, of course, to note that they've never once had the opportunity to register said pride at the ballot box. On the road again, just can't wait to get on the road again. As the trip neared its end, though, the Trump train had one final stop before heading back to the States. Landing in the Philippines for the US ASEAN Summit and East Asia Summit, it all seemed businesslike enough, but for anyone who's been following the presidency of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, this was arguably the most interesting stop-off of the whole tour. No fan of Barack Obama, no fan of the UN, and more than once at odds with his own judiciary, no, not Donald Trump, Rodrigo Duterte. Well, you can see why many thought this meeting of minds might go quite well. Of all the world leaders that one might expect Trump to get along with, it's Duterte. 
But Duterte's reputation goes further than mere trash-talking. Indeed, his whole political career, beginning with his stretch as mayor of Davos City, is marred by a penchant for extrajudicial killings in the name of controlling the country's drug problem. Since he took over the presidency last year, the death toll in extrajudicial killings has long surpassed 2,500 deaths. Before he was elected, he said he'd issue a 1,000 pardons a day to police and soldiers accused of human rights abuses, and also plans to issue a presidential pardon to himself for mass murder at the end of his six-year term. Not unlike Donald Trump, he doesn't tend to pick his words carefully and seems utterly disinterested in the views of his critics in the international community. You can go to hell. Mr. Obama, you can go to hell. And if I have to kill you, I will kill you. Personally. I challenge the Catholic Church. You are full of shit. Just don't fuck with my country about sovereignty. Just some of the times the Filipino president, Rodrigo Duterte, trash-talked the international community. So how did the meeting between Duterte and Trump go? As well as predicted? Oh, better. Rodrigo, I would like to commend you on your success as ASEAN chair at this very critical moment in time and in the association's history, such an important event. Donald Trump using time during his address to the ASEAN summit to let Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte know he had a friend in the US president. And I want to thank you for your incredible hospitality and the show last night, the talent at that show, I assume mostly from the Philippines, was fantastic. Thank you. By all accounts, it was a pretty good night. And, oh, wait, he's not finished. And you were fantastic, also very much from the Philippines. We very much appreciate the great treatment you've given. I thought last year, last night's event was fantastic. What was so special about last night, I hear you asking? Trump kept going on about how good it had been. Well, who can say, but the highlight was almost certainly Rodrigo Duterte serenading Donald Trump. Corrales upon you, the President. orders of the Commander-in-Chief of the United States. <laughs> Philippines President Rodrigo Duterte with the Filipino singer Pilita Corrales serenading U.S. President Donald Trump there. Jack, other than the obviously surreal nature of that event, why is that important? Well, Duterte has made his name uh, very much as being his own man. He does everything on his own terms. Um, as you heard from some of the clips in that pack there, sometimes to the extent where you wonder, is this a... A, you know, a head of state I'm listening to or, or just an angry man in a pub. Um, and when you watch some of his press conferences, he does often sound like an angry man in a pub. Um, but his opinion of the previous US administration was very low. He called Barack Obama a son of a whore uh, in a press conference as well. This wasn't sort of mm. accidentally overheard. So for him to sing a duet in public uh, on the, quote, orders of the US president, however lighthearted that might have been, is odd to say the least. It definitely sends a message um, about who the more dominant figure is in that relationship. And that is certainly unusual, as 
most of the heads of state that have come into contact with Donald Trump since he became president have tended to look as though they have the upper hand. And and on that, I mean, Trump did seem very impressed by the pomp that surrounded his various visits. Yes, he did. And, and a lot of people have commented on the fact that, well, this is the thing about state visits are, are always surrounded with lots of pomp and they're always very uh, dramatic and uh, they pull out all the stops. You, you see masses of military, you get, you know, flyovers, music, the whole shebang. And that is designed mainly really because they know that the um, the people, the population of the country that is, the delegation is visiting from will be watching. Um, they know that the delegation and that the head of state who's visiting will not be that impressed because they understand how it all works. Um, but it's very much aimed at impressing the US population. Uh, so, for example, China impressing the US population and so on. What is unusual about Donald Trump is because he has so little experience in politics, um, many have noted that he does genuinely seem to be quite um, impressed by it all and it does seem to affect the way that he deals with them. When you, when you hear Donald Trump talking to all these world leaders, he spends a great deal of time genuinely sounding as if he was in, in awe of the reception and the you know the the performance that he's he's had when he's got there. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's just talk quickly about North Korea. Trump came into for a fair bit of criticism for some of what he said. Well, yes, let's place to one side the um, battle of uh, <laughs> <laughs> minds or whatever about the you know dotard versus short and fat and so on. What what um, and we had a clip of it actually in the pack there. Donald Trump said. Uh, in a public, in a speech, that the U.S. had nuclear submarines stationed uh, strategically, or words mm-hmm. to that effect. That's unusual because, generally speaking, countries that have nuclear submarines will know they have them, but they don't stay where they are, or they don't hint at where they are. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he very much suggested that they were near North Korea and the thing about a secret uh, nuclear submarine is you don't say where it is. It might be a double bluff, we don't know they might be near Hawaii uh, it could be. It could be a double bluff. And, you know, who knows? Maybe Trump thinks that Hawaii is near North Korea. I don't know. That's, yes. Well, what, it's quite near. <laughs> what are the <laughs> takeaway messages from this trip then, do you think, Jack? Um, well, there any number of things. Obviously, if you take Trump's word for it, it went very well. Everyone loved him. Um, and this was uh, an example that America's standing in the world has uh, improved. Everyone now is really much more respectful of the US than they ever were before. And I noticed, actually, if you look online, um, as I have done in the past few days, there are quite a lot of quite right-wing Trump-supporting accounts, granted, um, putting up videos on YouTube and so on, comparing the reception that uh, Barack Obama got when he visited these countries to the reception that Donald Trump has received. Uh, As far as I could understand, the videos were trying to imply that Donald Trump got a much better reception. I have to say, watching it with a non- uh, politically aligned eye, they didn't look that different to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the weather was maybe slightly different in them and so on, but the, these videos seem convinced that Donald Trump was treated uh, like a god where Barack Obama was kind of humoured. Who knows? Anyway, um, takeaway messages definitely seems to be uh, a 
slow lumbering U-turn on China. Um, we remember when we were covering uh, Trump's campaign last year, uh, China was a big, big issue. He really wanted to stifle trade uh, with China. He wanted to um, tax uh, imports and so on to try and bring work back to the US. Doesn't seem to be saying that so much anymore. And also, I mean, when he said uh, that uh, he congratulated the Chinese Premier uh, Xi Jinping on the fact that his people had a great deal of respect for him. Now, that's an, that's an interesting choice of words um, when you're addressing a dictator. Mm-hmm. Um, ramped up hostilities with North Korea, um, obviously. Um, I don't think they've ramped up that much further than they were before he left for Asia, uh, but uh, certainly seem um, to be continue to be ramped up. There's a death sentence on his head now, but I think if Donald Trump had landed in North Korea... He might, they might have had to go <laughs> taken him out anyway, so I'm not sure if the death sentence is new, um, but that's just for calling uh, Kim Jong-un short and fat. Uh, a closer relationship with the administration, uh, which has one of the most controversial human rights records in the world. Uh, it's been uh, criticised heavily by the UN and certainly the previous US administration, that being the Philippines, for the thousands of extrajudicial killings. In Was the there not a story war. last year where Rodrigo Duterte had... Uh, 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 maybe a police chief had like fed a drug dealer to an alligator and there were I now now you're asking I, I wish you'd mentioned this uh, just before we had this discussion because <laughs> I can't remember the exact details but I'm I think that that story comes from his time as mayor of Davos yeah. City uh, it's one of the many horrifying stories of his time as mm-hmm. ma- um, mayor in Davos City uh, where he ran a similar smaller scale campaign of extrajudicial killings to clamp down on the drug problem as he puts it. Um, and at one point suggested that drug dealers should be thrown out of helicopters, if I remember correctly, last yeah, year. Yeah, I think certainly story. there were people who were fed to crocodiles. Um, that definitely did happen. I'm not sure whether he did that personally mm-hmm. or whether he ordered it. But certainly he, he, isn't, he doesn't, isn't shy about this kind of thing. Anytime he's been asked about it, he's never said no, 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 that's not true. That's an exaggeration by my opponents. He's always said, yep, that, that's definitely quite happy to go for extrajudicial killings. He says he doesn't care about human rights laws. Mm-hmm. Um, he's in charge, and that's that. I think, anyway, it's very telling that he's the man that uh, Trump seemed to form the closest relationship with when he was in Asia. Uh, and the one the, they definitely looked like they were sort of on the same page, like they genuinely got along. Um, when you saw him beside Xi Jinping, you just sort of thought, yeah, it's, it's, we can see who's in charge here. And so it ain't Donald Trump. We might be looking at the start of a <coughs> blossoming relationship there. I think it's blossomed already. <laughs> well, you're listening to The World This Week from the 17th of November 2017. The World This Week is, of course, brought to you in partnership with Common Space, commonspace.scot, and at the Common Space on Twitter. And if you'd like to make a donation or open a, a sc- subscription, it's entirely optional but makes a big difference. You can head over to The World This Week, sorry, worldthisweek.co.uk. And a huge thanks to those who have already set up a monthly subscription. We very much appreciate your support. We're also on Twitter at underscore world this week and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the programme via your favourite podcast app so you never need to miss an episode again.
You're listening to The World This Week from Friday the 17th of November. Hundreds of workers from the engineering firm Burnt Island Fabrications, known better as Bifab, marched on the Scottish Parliament yesterday, calling on the Scottish Government to safeguard the future of around 1,400 jobs at risk as the company is in danger of going into administration. Carolyn was at that protest march and met with workers and parliamentarians and has this report. I'm outside the Scottish Parliament building where hundreds of workers from Burnt Island Fabrications, joined by family members and union representatives, have marched through the streets of Edinburgh to rally at the Parliament, raising awareness of the plight of the Bifab workers. Bifab manufactures offshore structures for gas, oil and renewable energy sectors, with three sites across Scotland at Burnt Island and Methil and Fife and Arnish in the northwest of Scotland. It employs more than 600 workers and has a total of nearly 1,400 people working in its supply chain across Scotland. Though those jobs may now be at risk as the company faces potential administration. James Robertson is a scaffolder with Bifab in Fife and he told me why they were marching to the Parliament today. We're here to get the support for the politicians. We're actually caught in a financial wrangle between two contractors, one Dutch, one Scottish, and the people are working as per normal. We keep going, we keep fulfilling our end of the bargain, but we're the collateral that could get discarded at any time. And we're here to ask the Scottish Government to to step in and save the jobs. You've got your whole family here, you've got your son here with a sign saying save daddy's work. Do you think the people at the top understand the impact this is having on your life and your family? I'm not so sure the information's got across yet, but I'm hoping this has gone a long way to help it. James Robertson speaking to me earlier. Numerous statements have been made by the Scottish Government and the UK Government stating that they are doing all in their power to help find a resolution. But how does that statement translate to the workers? What exactly can those governments do? That's the question I posed to Mark Ruskell, the regional MSP for the Scottish Green Party in Mid-Scotland and Fife, where two of the Bifab factories are based. Well, I think it's a good question. I mean, there's clearly issues about the offshore wind supply chain at the moment and about whether there are fair contracts within that supply chain. What I'm concerned about is companies coming in and effectively acting in a predatory way, perhaps leading to asset stripping of companies, and that, that's a major concern. And I think for me it points to the need for an industrial strategy in Scotland. We've got strong climate change targets, we've got a clear target on renewable energy, but this is where the buck stops in terms of workers' jobs and whether Scotland's going to get its right, rightful share of that industry. So we need an industrial strategy that builds on the strengths of the oil and gas sector and moves forward, but with fair contracts within the supply chain. I think at the heart of this issue is an unfair relationship between companies that have power over Bifab and, and over other companies in the Scottish supply chain. Mark Ruskell, MSP, speaking there. Aside from statements from the government saying that they are doing all in their power, I asked Jenny Gilruth of the Scottish National Party, a member of the Scottish Parliament for the constituency of Midfife and Glenrothes, what she would say to give workers some comfort and just what the government would be doing. The government's working extremely hard at the moment to safeguard these jobs. I think it's really important that you take into, con- into consideration that uh, We've had high job losses in the constituency already. We've had lots of businesses shutting down. We've got high unemployment rates. We've got high child poverty levels. It's imperative the government does all that's in its power. I know the UK government is also working on this too, so we need all levels of government working hard to ensure these jobs stay. And what, what's your message to all of these workers that you're standing here around you right now? What can you say to them? My message to the workers is that I am with you. As a, a constituency MSP in Fife, I fully support you. We need to keep these jobs. They are vital to the economy in Fife. And they are vital to the families of the people who work in Bifab. Uh, and the kids that are growing up there as well in terms of job opportunities. We have to keep these jobs for Fife. Jenny Ruth, MSP. Despite no promise of payment, workers are continuing to work in at Bifab Yards today in hopes
hopes of finding a resolution. Representatives from the GMB union have been at the site in Fife since Monday advising the staff. I spoke with Hazel Nolan, the regional organiser for the GMB union in Scotland, and I asked if the decision to keep working had been based on the union's recommendations. That was a decision that they made themselves actually. On Monday we had to go down there and um, explain to them what, what the situation was. They've been told since Monday that they're not getting paid and they made the decision themselves that actually they want to do whatever they can do to keep this yard open. And I think, and it's been said before, the integrity that they've shown by continuing to work because they know um, how important these yards are and how important their jobs are, not just for their families, but for all the other families that, that you know, rely on work in being in Fife. Um, they support local communities, you know, even the local shops around the areas where they go to, places they stay. Um, they, they're all dependent on this and, and they're fighting for so much more. And I think that's been reflected in the fact that a lot of the community have come out to support them in such good numbers as well. Hazel Nolan from the GMB Union. And when I asked Hazel if the statements from government officials had given her any confidence in finding a resolution, Hazel said that actions speak louder than words. Politicians will always, will always say things. We'll measure what the um, Scottish government do and what the MSPs do in their actions and not their words. Hazel Nolan, regional organiser for the GMB Union, speaking to Catelyn at the end of that report there. You're listening to The World This Week. Last weekend, members of the Scottish folk and traditional music community descended on Edinburgh for the Carrying Stream Festival, a festival founded as a celebration of the life and legacy of the Scottish folklorist, poet, writer and political activist Hamish Henderson. Though this year's festival saw tributes being paid to two late greats of the Scottish folk community. And Carolyn has more in this report. They have sentenced a man or a The sounds of Edinburgh's Pleasance Cabaret Bar, home to the Edinburgh Folk Club, but over last weekend, for a few days, home also to the 16th annual Carrying Stream Festival. Celebrating the life of the man widely regarded as the father of the Scottish folk revival, Hamish Henderson, this year's festival paid tribute to another great of the Scottish folk community. One of the festival's organisers and the man who's kept it going over the past 16 years since Henderson's death, Eberhard Bort, better known by all as Paddy. Paddy Bort ran the Edinburgh Folk Club and, of course, the Wee Folk Club at what's potentially one of Edinburgh's smallest venues. Well, every Sunday night at the Oak, we've got the Wee Folk Club at 8.30, an intimate venue, 30 seats. Acoustic. It's a great night out. We've got fantastic musicians and uh, singers. Every Sunday night, do come along. But he was also an academic who compiled numerous books on the work of Hamish Henderson. Paddy Bort passed away earlier this year, leaving a hole in the heart of the Edinburgh and national folk and traditional music community. His influence is so grand that his death was marked with emotion in the Scottish Parliament and a tribute from the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon. But the carrying stream flows still and this weekend tributes were paid to both Hamish and Paddy. I spoke to Steve Byrne, musician and folklorist, and asked him how important Paddy's role had been in promoting Hamish's work and what his loss meant to the folk scene. I think the festival this year was just very difficult in terms of organisation because Paddy was somebody, as, as many of us who knew him uh, realised, was somebody that didn't stop and you know he would go to his office late of an evening and be emailing and organising things um, till the wee small hours. So I think in that sense the, there's been a, a bit of a pulling together of the, the resources of the, the folk club certainly and, and uh, people like myself stepping in to help at the, the lecture this year. And I think Paddy's role in promoting Hamish's work is absolutely massive in terms of keeping the, the carrying stream alive. 
we refer humorously to Paddy's four-volume trilogy of Hamish books, which uh, he started off with Born on the Carrying Stream in, I think, 2010-2011, which I was very pleased to be able to contribute to. And and those four volumes have brought together such a wide swathe of authors and uh, friends of Hamish's and people who didn't know Hamish at all other than through his work and reputation. Um, including myself actually, and and being able to look at various aspects of Hamish's work, bringing to light things that people didn't necessarily know about um, from other parts of his life, not just his his work within the folk revival. So I think those four volumes, uh, along with with Grace Note Publications and Gonzalo Matsai, have made an absolute uh, monumental contribution to the understanding of Hamish. Both Hamish and Paddy were not just fans and supporters of folk and traditional music, both were scholars. Paddy, the Associate Director of Edinburgh University's International Social Sciences Institute and Academic Coordinator at the University's Institute of Governance, coordinating work experience for students in the Scottish Parliament. He certainly would have had a lot to say about the current political situation that Scotland faces. I asked Steve Byrne just how relevant Hamish's work was to the current constitutional situation in Scotland and in Europe. Hamish's work wasn't just instrumental to the folk revival, that's right. Um, He was a a classical scholar, uh, spoke several languages, and I think that his perspective, if perhaps not his writing, his perspective and his way of viewing the world and the way of viewing humanity and the way of of looking at uh, people as being multifaceted and multilingual, multicultural uh, in, in the sense of You know, there is not just one way to to do things, not one way to look at things. Um, Dialects and minority languages count just as much, um, all that sort of thing. I think that that, in terms of Hamish's perspective, Hamish's own wartime um, experience, you know, going right back to that. I mean, somebody asked me about this over the weekend, you know, would Hamish have been a a, a Remainer, for example? And And I think that Hamish would have had very much the German view of the European Union, which I'm aware of through my wife, who is German, and her family. That, And I remember seeing the, the, the late uh, Guido Vestavella uh, on a, a news conference with William Hague way back in the day. They were both uh, foreign secretaries at the time. And he talked about the kind of thing I think Hamish would have probably uh, em- emoted uh, insofar as the European Union and the ideals um, of it are very much rooted in the war experience and the emotional case for peace. And now you can take issue with recent events, of course, and the the ways in which the, the mechanisms uh, work or don't work, but I think that basic ideal uh, of it being a movement for peace over and above everything else is something that's very much the German view and a view I think Hamish would have endorsed and had of course a longer run at in terms of his life, his experience uh, in the war and uh, simply looking at it as as an economical uh, argument I think is not something that would have been part of Hamish's outlook, uh, although that is just pure supposition on my part. Henderson's most famous work, the song Freedom Kamoyi, is considered by many to be the alternative Scottish national anthem. It speaks of anti-imperialism and the anticipation of the day when all peoples are truly free and can meet in peace and in friendship. Around a decade ago, a much younger Jack Foster interviewed Paddy for the now defunct folk and traditional music radio programme The Garden Sessions, and he asked Paddy for his pick of three songs he would want if he ended up stranded on a Hebridean island. We've no idea where Jack came up with the idea for that segment. But of course, one of those songs was perhaps one that those who knew Paddy would have guessed he would have included. 
I, I, I thought to be clever, you know, and combine two things. I mean, one is uh, my uh, huge admiration for Hamish Henderson and Hamish Henderson's work. And of course, through Edinburgh Folk Club, I'm involved in uh, organising the Carrying Dream Festival every November uh, in honour and celebration of the work of Hamish Henderson. And I mean, his greatest song, of course, is uh, the Freedom Gamalia. Now, there are, of course, umpteen versions of that song, but I, I, I thought I'd combine it with uh, one of my favourite bands, and uh, uh, the band's Fife and Real. Amid the concerts and open singing sessions over last weekend, the yearly memorial lecture paid homage to Henderson as the European intellectual and scholar. This year it was delivered by Donald Smith, director of the Traditional Arts and Culture Scotland and founder of the Scottish Storytelling Centre. It was entitled Scotland in Europe, Europe in Scotland. Smith spoke biographically of Henderson, of how he favoured anonymity over personal definition as a conduit for the culture and music of Scotland, and he illustrated this by quoting from the elegy that Henderson wrote himself under the earth I go. The poem from which the festival took its name, which tells that the carrying stream will continue with new voices ever flowing. Macker, you mon sing them. Cantos of exploit and dream, deign of desire and fulfilment, balance of fire and red flambeau. Tomorrow, songs will flow free again and new voices be born on the carrying stream. Donald Smith reading from Under the Earth I Go at the end of that report there. Lovely to hear Five Hand Reel on the world this week, Carolyn. I thought that might make you smile, Jack. Yeah. Yeah. Although we had hoped to perhaps uh, play out with Freedom Come All You. We're probably not going to have enough time, but we did have enough time to have an argument about the best version of Freedom Come All You. Well, it wasn't an argument. Neither of us thought that any version was less good than the other. We just had, we have our preferences, that's all. You're just old-fashioned. I'm just a modern folk music fan. Well, I'm happy because I got my favourite uh, recording of it's already been played on the show, because that was it. The, the Five Hand Reel one would be the one I would pick. Well, I really like Chris Reaver's version, the more modern Do version. you know, I'm not actually sure if I've heard... What? It's got some lovely harmonies from Kareem Polwart in it as well. It's a very nice version of the song. Well, every uh, single World This Week listener that isn't interested in <laughs> Scottish folk music uh, has long since switched off, uh, because this is not... The, we went from Donald Trump in Asia to Chris Reaver oh. covering... Although Hamish Henderson's legacy is far, well, just as much about politics and the political future and history of Scotland as it is about folk music. He was instrumental in pushing for Scottish devolution and independence as well. I mean, his mark on that political landscape is quite massive. I think it's also quite relevant from, because uh, last week was Remembrance Day, and um, I remember seeing somewhere, and I, I wish I could remember who I could credit with, because this wasn't, this is not my um, observation but that there's a great deal of attention that's been given to the poets of the First World War. Um, like, you know, people remember Dulcia de Coromes, the, mm. the poppies is, um, f- comes from poetry and so on. But the poets of the Second World War are largely 
invisible um, in history. Well, in comparison with those of the First World War. And Hamish Anderson, of course, was one of the major poets of the Second World War. And there's huge amounts that he wrote about his time in, in Italy and so on. Mm-hmm. And his work has become uh, quite um, well-known within certain groups of the political community in Scotland as well. I know certainly throughout 2014, there were many of the debates that went on on the Yes Movement side ended with a rendition of Freedom Come All You. I've heard Leslie Riddick leading town halls and renditions of it, Marcia Scott led town halls and renditions of it, and it became this kind of alternative anthem for that. I haven't heard it much at uh, unionist events. No, said. no, it no. It does tend to be uh, one for the for the pro-independence crowd in, in Scotland. We now have just enough time left for our alternative markets where we highlight figures that we believe to be more important to you than all the FTSE 100 or stocks and shares. This week we are looking at the most recent, recent release from the Office for National Statistics on UK employment figures from June to September. The number of jobless people, people not in work but seeking a job, fell from 59,000 to 1.42 million during that period. Does that make sense? Fell by 59,000. Oh, I see. Fell by 59,000 to (laughs) 1.42 million. I was going to say, I'm not good at maths. Workers' earnings rose 2.2% in those three months compared with a year ago. However, when we look at those earnings in real terms, when accounting for inflation, earnings actually fell 0.5%, marking seven months of negative pay growth. Until next week, don't forget to follow us on Twitter, underscore world this week. And you can like us on Facebook too. You can subscribe to this program as a podcast on iTunes. And if you like what you hear and would like to support the world this week you can make a donation or open a subscription at worldthisweek.co.uk until next week from me jack foster and me carolyn scott goodbye, goodbye.